Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Michael Rowan, a political operative in his seventh decade working in and around politics. He managed the winning 1968 Senate campaign of Mike Gravel. Yes, that Mike Gravel. And Michael was often running at a high level in politics, playing roles in the successful careers of names and campaigns like Andrew Young, Pat Moynihan, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, among many others, before becoming deeply involved in the effort against Hugo Chavez taking power in Venezuela. Michael is currently a co-founder of a startup helping developing countries create sustainable economic growth with projects in Sudan, Nigeria, and China. In his front row seat and active participation during the founding of Modern Political Consulting makes him a great guest for this podcast. Michael Rowan, tell me a bit how you grew up. I was born in Long Island and went to Catholic schools at St. John's University. I was a literature student. Fair at school, but not really interested until I got into the real meaning of literature. From that, it brought me to an opportunity to get out of New York, to go to Alaska, right, five years after it was made a state, to teach English to Eskimos. I wound up getting totally engaged in the difference of the culture, the poverty, the conditions in that little town, uh, 5,000 people were as bad as any in the United States in terms of uh, poverty and so on, subsistence income from fishing only. I got involved in uh, politics there because the city council, which was like nine people, was all white people or some of them Indian Alaskans from 2,000 miles away. I ran a, a slate of Eskimo candidates that, were, that came out of my high school English class. We had a discussion about leadership, and they were saying that uh, Eskimos will never run for public office in, in a white context because it's uh, just all boasting and lies and, uh, and BS. They're not interested in it, but that they have a more rabbinical kind of uh, leadership thing. We found those people. We ran them. They all got 82% of the election. And then after that, they said uh, they found that the uh, city was entirely corrupt. And with all of these money deals, and they uh, told me at like 24 years old, uh, you have to be the city manager. Uh, we're hiring you as a city manager. And I told them, I don't know anything about city manager. And they uh, said, well, we didn't know anything about uh, politics until you talked us into it. So we're um, hiring you. So I, they hired me and I actually doubled the revenue of the city just by uh, writing proposals to the federal government, to Bobby Kennedy, who was the, my senator in New York at that time. And they came. Sergeant Shriver the, was the head of the, the Peace Corps and then the Office of Economic Opportunity. He came up there with Economic Development Administration and so on. So I learned a hell of a lot. And what was the city? In it was Bethel. It's a, it's a little vi a village on the town on the, on the Cusquim River. It's about 400 miles west of Anchorage. There's no road in there. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences going from New York City in the heart of Manhattan and winding up in an anthropological dream world about a thousand years ago. An extraordinary thing. I had kids in my class, my high school and junior high school uh, classes that were older than I was because they were working and fishing 
right to the, from the time they were like eight years old as part of the family, this really impacted the whole rest of my life. All I've been doing is I'm in, involved in, in development, in poverty, actually the creation of wealth, private sector wealth. I was interested in building economies and I started to learn about it in Bethel. And it really affected the Gravel campaign because we ran the campaign for Gravel based upon the fact that 20% of the population was Alaska Natives. They were without land, without enterprises, without the capacity, without education, and no, very little health. Bureau of Indian Affairs was treating them as if they were on a reservation when military prison. I became a big reformer for the development of these people. I really came to love them and so on. I, I married a Klingon Indian. And we have two children. We have been divorced for 40 years, but we're really, really close friends. And my kids are still very, very active there. Connect the dots for me, how you get involved in the Gravel campaign. And yes, the same Mike Gravel, who 40 years later is on a debate stage running for president. In 2008, you intersect with him in 1968. I think I've got the basic details right. He's the, uh, he's the Speaker of the State House at this point, taking on a generally popular Democratic incumbent, Democratic primary here. You're working for challenger Mike Gravel. It was a coincidence in every respect. Gravel heard about me because my success in Bethel. He was in the legislature, Speaker of the House, and he was interested in regional education for Alaska Native population. He had a bill in, in the House. I got involved in organizing the Alaska Native communities, all the way from the Arctic Slope down to the Aleutia Chain. That's about 2,000 miles, by the way, uh, to go from Point Prudhoe to like Adak. All right. Alaska is big. Well, you got to remember, there was only like 250,000 people in the state. And the state has 565,000 square miles to it. You can't imagine the distances and that nobody knew anything really about rural Alaska. Half the people live in Anchorage, another 25% live in Fairbanks or Juneau or Ketchikan, some of the small cities. And they're all white people from the lower 48, like me, and they know nothing, really. They've never been out there and so on, except to, to do hunting uh, or get in an airplane and so on. Gravel flew out to Bethel. We went over the bill he was trying to pass on regional schools when he was speaker. He passed that bill uh, as a result of the big Native response he got from it. I got them involved in politics in Bethel, and they, that caught on in Nome and Port Barrow and Bristol Bay and the other huge areas. It was a very, very exciting time. The bill passed, and then he said, I'm going to run for the House against Ralph Rivers. This is 1966. And I told him, let me help you. I'll help you in the rural areas. He ran in 66, and he lost by 700 votes in that primary. But in the rural areas, he, he built up like an 85% to 15% rate. And then he lost all the cities, all right? And then he says, after that loss, I'm going to run in 68 against Ernest Greening, who was the first senator, the first governor, the writer of the constitution, <laughs> an icon in the state, all right? So Gravel asked me to run the campaign. And I told him one more time, like I did to the Eskimos on the city council, I don't know a thing about campaigns. We have to get somebody that really knows how this thing works on the statewide level. He went to school with in Springfield with uh, Joe Napolitan. And Joe Napolitan was, uh, at that time, in 66, he ran the Milton Schapp campaign for governor of Pennsylvania. 
And Schaap won with a half hour of film that completely changed politics in Pennsylvania at that time. It was just extraordinary. Schaap pulled this incredible upset. That had happened in a primary in Pennsylvania with a completely asymmetric use of half hour media that nobody believed anybody would watch a political commercial for half an hour. So Napolitan came up to uh, Anchorage, Gravel, and, and I <laughs> met with him. That was uh, the beginning of my education in this business. Joe was the best user of survey research and the best user of television media in the Democratic Party. All right. He would put great teams together. He was a great team builder, and he created all kinds of business, uh, probably 10 research companies that came out of Napoleon's work. I was just one of them. And among the, the media people from Shelby Stork, first of all, the guy that did the Schaap film and then the Gravel film, Winthrop Rockefeller in Arkansas, <laughs> a Republican who wins the same way. All of this was asymmetric in the sense that Joe used research because he was a journalist in training. He thought that the questions that we asked ought to be answered by the respondents instead of our answering them with yes, no answers. He's a great believer in open-ended questionnaires. I took this to the length that he had never seen before. I did some surveys without demography, without any kind of explanation of who was answering, where all the questions were open-ended. Just let voters talk. This was a coding nightmare, okay, for the research. But I didn't care. And we set up computer analysis thing that could actually handle that kind of thing. Not unsimilar to what they're trying to do in AI now with GPT, you know? We came out with kernels of things that we could learn by listening to people that way. More meaningful than knowing you're 7% up females in, in the urban area, you know, that kind of thing. The research thing about Alaska identified the wave. I'm a wave theorist because human beings are social. They do things together. There are waves in this way and that way, just like in the ocean. Some are on top and some are undercurrent. They get very, very close and powerful and so on. And what we saw in the Alaska situation, the wave was really positive. It was to put all of the Alaskans together because, first of all, they didn't know each other. So if we gave them a film that showed them what they could put together for the future, they would completely blow away the past. And that's exactly what they did. All we did was give them the dream, and the dream became real because you know, we passed the Alaska Native Land Claims Act. We passed the pipeline bill. We created the economy that the economy in 20 years multiplied by 40 times. By the time Sarah Palin was governor of that state, her GDP was 40 times what it was when I went into that state 20 years before. It's the most marvelous thing. And the other thing that's happened with the Alaska Native people, they moved from poverty to the middle class in one generation through those Alaska Native corporations. I was very much part writing that bill. The permanent fund was great. I ran that, that governor's campaign, uh, Jay Hammond. He's a Republican. But I didn't, I didn't really care about politics as much as I did government. So really making Gravel the candidate of Alaska's future and using Greening's credentials almost against him and making him yesterday's man. We didn't use the film until the last 10 days. 
You can't do any more harm than the rest of me. <laughs> well, I'll, the problem is I'll try and do some good. That's Mike Gravel's slogan was, let's do something about the state we're in. Yet Matt, he said, that as a United States senator, he aimed to pay attention to the problems of Alaska. It was a goal that was worth an uphill fight. The honor that I'm seeking to represent the people here in Alaska would be one of the most cherished things that I could ever hope to acquire. To put forth all of the effort and ability that I might have to return th that honor by trying to make a contribution that will last beyond my immediate lifetime. The proceeding was presented to you by Alaskans for Mike Gravel. We were running three to one behind Greeny 10 days before the election on my tracking pole. We won the election by 6%. You could do things back then because you were in three networks, put all your money in, create a new story and see how people like it. I left the Gravel office after the Alaska Native Claims Bill passed. That bill now went into the state and there was nothing else to do, quite frankly, in the U.S. Senate or in the Washington context. Alaska now had, it had the oil pipeline, it had the oil industry, it had a sub-industry, it had the Alaska Native Corporation, and it, that's the wealth creation engine that produced the GDP change, okay? And that was the end of the federal government's catalytic role in making that happen. All the people came together, the environmentalists, the Alaska Natives, the industry, the Republicans, the Democrats, the independents, all came together in 68 for this future in which the pipeline was connected to the Alaska Native solution. And that solution was connected to the flourishing of the economy and the growth of uh, health and education for the entire population. You outline the importance of Mike Gravel in Alaska in the 60s and the 70s, but at least outside of Alaska, if people are aware of him and know the name, they probably think about his emergence in the 2008 presidential campaign, which I think is fair to identify as a quixotic campaign. If we can't label that as quixotic, then we probably need to retire the word. But as someone who knew him in the years as a powerful state legislator, U.S. senator, what was your read on that period in the 2000s when Mike Gravel reemerged? He got into a direct democracy idea, and he wrote a book about it, and, and he, he went down that path with a bunch of idealists, actually. And quite frankly, they're dreamers. It was a completely quixotic idea. He just got into the presidential race to embarrass the Democrats, if he could, into, into that. And quite frankly, it was uh, not effective. I, I, Did that uh, seem like the same guy to you that you knew, that sort of him doing his thing? Or was that as unusual for you as it was for maybe the rest of us to see him pop his head up after so long? It was unusual. What I suggested to him, if he's going to run for president, what he ought to do is run with the Alaska model. Talk about how Alaska did two things. They solved the poverty problem and the inequality problem. One of the two big problems in the United States right now, it's like the working class is feeling like it's in poverty and their grievance against the uh, U.S. and the U.S. system is based on inequality. I think he should have gone that direction. And I suggested it to him, but he didn't take it. And you mentioned a name that I know is very important in your development, Joe Napolitan. Like the state of Alaska, the political consulting world, at least the modern political consulting world, was in its infancy. Can you set the table for your entry into that world? And, and what does political consulting look like in the late 60s, early 70s, as you're getting your wits about you? 
When I moved out of the Senate in 1970, I joined the Paul as a partner. Instead of taking me in his company, he made me a partner in my own company and collaborated with me. Joe was a great mentor. He was so generous in terms of education. He would read everything. He knew, knew everything. Joe Napolitan, somebody who was in the Kennedy world and LBJ and Hubert Humphrey was very prominent. Yeah. Look, there are two things about Joe that people don't know. One is Joe was at his heart a journalist. He was really looking for the good story. And he was looking for the breaking story, the breaking waves. And he wanted to get on top of things. He was very, very competitive. But he also had this collaborative sense that was really unusual. The second thing is he was interested in government. All right. This is a guy who was the pollster for JFK and then for RFK and so on. So he's part of that whole Camelot world. But on the other hand, he doesn't go into that government. But his best friend and partner does. And that's Larry O'Brien. And O'Brien was part of our company as well. And I attached to O'Brien and Napolitan in both their respects. Napolitan is the perfect political consultant. O'Brien, the perfect government consultant to get things done. I was interested in both those things. And so this was always a a tension. Whenever I was in the room with Larry and Joe, I was the kid there, but I was treated as an equal right from day one. He put me right out there. I got involved in here. Let me just run run them off. The the campaigns I did in the the 70s. I worked for Michael Harrington up in Massachusetts and, and he won a seat. I worked for Edmund Zvinsky, you know, a Jewish guy in Iowa, in a German farming town. And he's new to the town and he's a liberal Jew. Okay. And he beats a German Schwengel for that election. Andy Young, black guy coming right off the civil rights movement and, and so on, and all that controversy in Georgia, running in the suburbs of Atlanta that has more white people than black people, where we win the election by an idea that I had. Listening to Andy talk, you get to know one person, but if you see his face, you can definitely know he's black. So let's do a campaign only in radio, and we'll see if we can break through the racial filter by getting people to like him before they find out what color his skin is. That worked. That got Andy in Congress, and then that got me uh, talking to Governor Carter, too. Pat Moynihan in New York. I mean, here's an intellectual historian. He's so smart. He's smarter than the other 99 U.S. senators when he stands up. There was just no way to deal with Pat. Extraordinary, absolutely spectacular human brain that could not be categorized as liberal or conservative. There was no way to contain that brain inside these weird containers we have. But when he went into the UN and he had a a year or two in the UN, he created something that Schwartz was able to take that content and get him elected in in a New York primary. Another one is Howard Bessenbaum in Ohio from Cleveland, a millionaire at the time, which was a big deal at that time. He'd be a billionaire today. And he wants to run against John Glenn. The first poll we do for him, Napoleon looked at this poll and said, Rowan, if you can do this one, my hat's off to you. John Glenn had an 80% favorable rating. But again, in the research, I did a whole bunch of open-ended questions. I spent a lot of money with uh, Howard and he was completely open to totally different approach. All right. We came up with all kinds of stories to tell and issues dealing with women, environment, Vietnam War, totally different kinds of ways. Charles Guggenheim, terrific guy that like Shelby Stork, who had produced the film in Alaska, Stork came from Guggenheim's group and Guggenheim didn't do it because he didn't have time. But Guggenheim came out with uh, Howard 
And he looked at these uh, story things that I'm doing and he said, let's do five, five minute pieces. And we also had a guy named Jim Dunn, but he was in radio for a long time. Jim thought of a, a little technology of how to get a live story into radio news. He got his through the telephone. He got the news on the road so that anything that was breaking during the day, I could write the idea of the press conference. It could be 20 words. And he could get it heard like 45 minutes later back then made a huge difference. The question is being able to think about doing things out of the box. It's much easier when you were never in the box. In the 70s and 80s, I got a good reputation and got all the Wall Street Journal stories, you know, from, you know, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Somebody I think you cross paths with and you can take it in whatever direction you think is relevant. But let me start with Marshall McLuhan, not so much a political name in a conventional sense, but a famous thinker, best known for his admonition in relation to television, that the medium is the message. You crossed paths with Marshall McLuhan at some point, correct? What should people know about him? Marshall McLuhan and Tony Schwartz are two of the most important people in understanding American culture, period. They are so relevant today. It's just extraordinary. McLuhan's notion, what the medium is the message means, Tim, and I spend a lot of time with him in Tony's studio. McLuhan is a student of literature, just the way I am. And so he's just into words and the way words affect human emotions or thought or behavior. What he began to realize between human language as it is presented in print produces a linear and logical understanding that can be more cognitive or analytic than the live presentations that you can get in radio, especially in television, where you get both sight and sound affecting you at the same time, just as they do in real life. In print, you basically have the notion of putting together the meaning of the word, whereas in television, it's an experience. And it goes by very, very rapidly. And television was the first medium that actually presented this. So it created a whole new engagement. McLuhan's view was that the television experience, you can get totally engaged in watching it. It's almost at the level of mesmerization, habitual way of giving yourself to the story. It's the audience getting into the act. He connected audience getting into the act in relationship to Vietnam War. He believes that television was the major reason why we lost the Vietnam War because of the coverage that it produced so much anxiety and disgust in people that they had never seen before. It was an atrocity. So it wasn't a left-right thing. It was a human disgust thing. That's what I used in with Metzenbaum. Glenn loved to call himself Colonel Glenn. This is 1970, and 71. This is Kent State. Kent State was the year that, <laughs> that Howard was running. And so we had the Kent State disaster at the same time that we had Glenn, this popular guy, calling him. So we called him Colonel Glenn every time we got in a debate. Colonel Glenn, that's the way Howard would start. It didn't really matter what he said after that, because the medium is a message. This is a military guy. He had everything but a uniform on by the time we finished with him. That is not a popular thing in Ohio at that time, all right? This is the kind of dimension we were playing. And the name that came up recently on a podcast with a previous guest, Andy Johnson, is the name Tony Schwartz. And to show how a lot of these things are connected, Andy got her start in the business in the mid-80s. A mentor to her was Joe Slate White, who cut his teeth in the late 60s, early 70s. And right. Joe Slate White made his new hires read a book called 
the responsive chord by right. Tony Schwartz, which has a direct connection to you, Michael Rowan. I helped Tony write that book. He used a lot of the examples I did from Alaska, actually, to show the resonance theory. Tony's theory is very, very simple. Tony's background is, first of all, he started as a graphics designer and he had agoraphobia. He could not move outside. It bothered him for his entire life, you know, psychologically. He depended on me for research. He never left his house. I would go over there, give him the research stories and go over the kind of stuff. And we would talk about what we wanted to do in terms of the story. Or we'd bring the candidate in and we'd just start to listen and see how we can connect them to the waves. Tony, like McLuhan, all believe in social structures, there are just waves. The candidates are really surfers, one wave or another. And sometimes they go down and sometimes they go up. Sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. But the question is to be on the right time, the right place. Tony believes that the response is more interesting than the stimuli. He's not a Pavlovian with stimuli response or a behaviorist. He's a Rorschachian, if that's a word. What they're getting subjectively, what they're hearing is a lot more important than what you're saying. If you say things in such a way that they can hear something uncomfortable, they will begin identifying with your message. He was in, deep inside the brain. This was revolutionary in advertising. Tony Schwartz, most famous for the Daisy ad, right, for right. Lyndon Johnson in 1964. You mentioned some of the races that you were involved in. Let me pick out a couple of those threads as well, some of the really prominent figures. You mentioned your early work for Andy Young, helping him get elected to the House. He, after that, in some order, becomes a UN ambassador. He becomes mayor of Atlanta, arguably the most successful Black elected official of his generation. What can you say about Andy Young? What made an impression on you? Andy Young walked into the uh, Tony's studio at West 56th Street, 10th Avenue, 56th Street in Manhattan. What we do is I would interview them and Tony would record right away, start recording everything that they said. So I'd ask Andy, why, why are you running for office? Why should people vote for you against somebody else? <laughs> Andy would come out, he would do something that would be about 58 and a half seconds or 29 and a half seconds <laughs> that you could just simply cut you know, the, the tape as they did it in those days. And you had a commercial. His voice also was the one of the most lilting voice, I think a better voice than Martin Luther King had. He's a preacher, you know, just like King. He had this melodic sense of resonance built in. His, the meaning of what he was saying is biblical for him. This is not an idea he has. This is something he believes in. We're still working together on a development project, Andy and I, spectacular human being. He was just really special. Now, when he got off that message and into the UN, and he got in trouble because he, he was identifying with the Palestinians and the Jews instead of picking sides. He was trying to put them together the way he's trying to put black and white people together. I think I uh, perceive of my job in the United Nations, uh, I think quite proudly as a politician. I see that post as uh, a post which continues to utilize the political system uh, which we hold dear, the free discussion and debate, the creation of a majority opinion around certain issues as a means of formulating and contributing to the development of a body of world opinion that will keep the world living together at peace. 
I see myself working very closely under the guidance of the president and this administration to carry out those policies and principles which this administration and this government is seeking to share with the rest of the world. Andy was a very successful entrepreneur. He's an international development guy. I've, I've run into him in Africa and Latin America. And over the last uh, 20 years, when I've been working in 17 different foreign countries, I'm running into Andy Young, who's helping people in developing stages to do this. Let me ask for a bit more on Pat Moynihan as well. You teed us up there, longtime senator from New York, coincidentally also uh, ambassador to the UN, worked in four presidential administrations, both Democrats and Republicans, considered one of the great thinkers among politicians. In the 20th century, I don't know when I'll talk to somebody else who was up close and personal with Pat Moynihan, especially in his prime in the 1976 race. Can you give me your experiences with Pat Moynihan in the political trenches with him? It's like asking about Buckminster Fuller, Krishnamurti, who are also people that have been actually in a room with trying to work with. When you get a brain, when you're around somebody like that, you have to kind of like just close your eyes to their brilliance and figure, okay, how can I get this guy to understand the mundane situation that he's in? Okay, like Einstein meets the fifth grade student. Moynihan had great respect for human beings. Moynihan was a great socializer. Comes from this Irish culture that I do. He was first generation, I am too, from Ireland, or second generation in this, in this country. His sense of language was, he was always thinking about the listener as opposed to what he wanted to say. Pat had all kinds of things to say. He could tailor them to his listener all the time. He was a collaborator. You know, he worked through like five presidents. You know, he's dealing with the Nixons, the Ford, the Carter, the et cetera. And each of these are personalities that are just, most presidents, after they become president, they start to believe their BS, as Napoleon used to say. The biggest problem in campaigns is when, they, when the candidate starts to believe what he's saying. You have to have a certain humility to what you're saying. He had tremendous sense of knowledge and pride and power, but he had humility the way he presented it. Now, you could get him into competitive situations like he got into in the UN, where he stood up and got into arguments that created his image in the world. And he was seen as somebody who was a great defender of the United States and democracy and yada, yada, yada. And it was true. All right. But he's playing a role in the UN. And that's the role that he took. But Pat Moynihan for himself is a very lilting Yates kind of character. He's a very poetic kind of guy. I was raised in, in uh, Manhattan. We lived on the west side, lived on the east side, lived on 42nd Street. 42nd Street has been a big street in my uh, life, going to the Navy at Grand Central, uh, which is on 42nd Street, uh, July 1, 1944. Uh, we used to live over in 10th Avenue, 558 West 42nd Street, which is the west side. I used to call Hell's Kitchen, still doing it. Made my way from 10th Avenue across to uh, 1st Avenue, where the... Um, United Nations is, and I was our permanent representative at the UN, and so back and forth across that street. That's, well, home is um, in Pinder's Corners in New York, but uh, the heart's still on 42nd Street. Just a beautiful mind and really, really 
careful relationships with people and so much more personal. He could just spend years, years with Pat Moynihan. Fast forward a little bit to the Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign in 1992, your experiences. I was working at that time an international campaigns, okay? So I wasn't involved in the American campaign. But I sat down and wrote, I did a study on values, on Maslow's values. You know, Maslow's the hierarchy, hierarchy of, of needs. Yeah. yeah, the hierarchy of needs, that the economy is primary, family is secondary, security is tertiary, and those base things, economy, security, and family, that's politics at the basic level. And that all of the ideals that we have in government, the whole notion of democracy, of law, of government itself, of environment, poverty, all of the ideals, expressions, desires of human beings are very, very important. But when you, a conflict occurs between the ideals and the base, either security or family or economy, the economy and, and security <laughs> will always win. We're talking marginally here, you know? A 60-40 game all the time. The Democrats, of course, have this problem because they are talking all the time about the ideals in government and democracy and law as if they have a constituency, and they don't. There's very little mental constituency. And the Maslowian values that deal with economy, that's food, that's income, survival, right? Security, that's survival. Family, that's also survival. It's procreation. <laughs> it's the next generation. We're all living things, human beings, and we have bodies and we have spirits too. And But if you run a campaign based only on spirits, you're in deep, deep trouble. What I did is I sat down and I analyzed every television commercial in a political campaign since 52, the Eisenhower-Stevenson campaign. I looked at every commercial. I categorized them according to the four values, what they were reflecting. I just did, did an analysis of that all the way through. I did it for the part of the Clinton campaign. It was in 92 that I did this. I sent this off to a guy named Carl Spielberger. is a famous advertising agency guy who was a very, very close to Clinton. He handed the study to Clinton. Clinton flipped on that study and handed it to James Carville and so on, who had already is on this track. You know, and that's where the economy stupid came from, is the Maslowian value thing. I wrote a book called Getting Over Chavez and Poverty for the Venezuelans. On the back of it, I had Clinton's letter saying these value ideas, value campaign are the the future, you know, of political campaigns, because you've got to get past these issues and the complexity of the issues and simplify this to the level it becomes meaningful, very meaningful, that this is this is really a value cut. This is really something that has meaning to our economy, meaning to my family, my own security. So if you can get the spiritual, as it were, values reflected in economic terms, security terms, or family terms, you're very, very strong. That's what Clinton did. That's what Tony Blair picked up on. I was a little bit involved in that campaign as well. And this, this was a big trend in the 90s, really reacting to Thatcher and Reagan, who had simplified this thing as being, no, it's economy, it's a family, and it's security. And that's where we stop, <laughs> all right? 
So we're not, we're not going to play that game. You know, who's going to win on the ideal side, okay? Because all the ideals are pointing to the, to the problems we have with poverty, inequality, civil rights, women's rights, guns, abortion. All of these issues fall into these kinds of areas that you can get back and forth, but they're not connected to the base. And so this is why the Republicans as a minority party in the country, and they, they have been since World War II and FDR, has been in the, in the majority half the time because they are campaigning, especially since Dick Berthland and the key to Reagan's mm-hmm. figuring this out in 1980. And uh, Reagan, a great uh, communicator, but Worthlin was the brain that actually got him onto the morning in America type of, mm. of stuff. I know you have a deep connection with the country of Venezuela, not just professionally, but personally. Can you tell the story of what drew you there, your work there, and, and what you've learned from it? In 1993, I went down to Venezuela. This was after Chavez had conducted a coup against Carlos Andres Perez, who was a democratically elected president. The context first. Venezuela is the first democracy in Latin America of the 37 nations in the Caribbean and Latin America. It's the first in 1958 to run a really good election, democratic election. And it is the richest GDP per capita in Latin America. All right. In that context, all right, all the Americans and the American consultants are down there. Okay. Napolitan went down there and, and worked with Carlos Sanchez Perez. David Garth, from New York, ran the Copay campaigns, you know, Caldera campaigns, and other, other people. All right. So that's the context of this. There are more political consultants down in, in Venezuelan campaigns from the 70s and 80s and 90s, any other foreign country, because uh, they had the money, they had the, the interest, and they were trying to kind of like imitate the American world, but at the same time have a very distinct culture of their own. I went down there in 93 after the coup attempt because the both political parties, uh, the, uh, the Adecos and the Copianos, which were kind of like nominally left and right, were failing. All right. Just like the Democrats and Republicans here. There's a coup attempt by military guy. All right. In the Chavez. And with only like uh, 60 troops, he almost takes over the place. But they put him in jail and so on. It becomes a huge folk hero as a result, right? So I get down there two years after that, and we're running a presidential campaign in a primary. I'm figuring, okay, so we have an anti-system, anti-both parties is more powerful in the polls than either of the two big parties or the small parties, all right? This is an open door. I'm, I'm telling all the candidates, Hugo Chavez is going to walk through this door unless we really do something about it in 93. They can't believe it. He's in jail. How is he going to do it in jail? I sat down and with the first Black candidate to run, Claudio Fermin, and he gets the nomination from the AD. This was hard hard to do. It's a very rigid party, okay? And it's totally white, male, chauvinist party that nominates a Black guy, okay? It's kind of like what the Republicans are doing in some states. Now, so, so Claudio is up there, like, and we have to run a campaign. He says, How, what message can we possibly give? What political message can we get? I said, we can't give the message of democracy or union or anything because oh, we'll have everybody dividing up immediate when you say it. What we can do is we can do the Alaska campaign. 
We can do a campaign that says we're going to take the oil company and the oil resource in this country, and we're going to make everybody and every citizen in this country a shareholder, an owner of that company. Instead of being indirect through the state, we're going to give that company to the people. So he just looked at me like with crossed eyes, like, what? (laughs) Anyway, we ran the campaign and we almost won. We almost won that campaign. We lost by just a drop to Caldera, who went on to pardon Chavez of all his sins, figuring that will control him, right? That meant he could run for the 98 campaign. He ran for the 98 campaign. I was married at that time to a Venezuelan. I was working out of Caracas and flying back to the States and, and to Europe and so on. And the whole notion of the three parties, there were three people running against Chavez. Chavez starts at 4%. So I'm writing for El Universal. I was a, a regular columnist for three or four newspapers down there 15 years. So I predicted that if you're going to run three candidates, three parties against Hugo Chavez, who's now at 4%, he's going to win a sheer majority of the vote. And all of you can get blown away. I got just like blown out of the water. The only journal that was interested in was the Wall Street Journal because they knew about me. <laughs> so they began printing all the stuff I was writing about Hugo Chavez. It all, it all got printed. It all came true too. Chavez gets elected and he begins to defenestrate the democratic system. The legislature gets locked up. The Supreme Court gets reappointed and doubled in number. Everything from the Supreme Court agreed with the Chavez administration. Every piece of legislation agreed unanimously with Chavez and so on. It was effectively a dictatorship. By 2002 or so, recall came along, the presidential recall. I was involved in that campaign and we won that campaign actually, but Chavez counted the votes. So he won that, kept the election, began to prosecute all the people that were in that campaign, including me. Then in 2006, I ran the campaign of Governor Manuel Rosales from Zulia State. We got close in that election, really close, according to the New York and Mexican uh, exit polls. But Chavez counted the vote there, too. And officially, we lost that election by 64% to 36%, when in fact, it was probably 52, 48. Anyway, I moved back to the U.S. (laughs) One piece you mentioned casually is that you personally were a, uh, what, a target of Chavez, the Chavez government. Can you say more on that? Yeah, I was um, writing weekly newspaper articles that were common sense, all right, but very dangerous to the Chavez administration. A number of things began to happen to me. I began to get telephone calls threatening my family and and people telling me that you will die and, you know, for what you're doing, things like this. And one day I met with one of the um, key guys uh, with my partner, Eric Eiffel. We were walking through a, a marketplace where we had a meeting with uh, Governor Rosales coming up, who was running for president. And one of the key Chavez aides confronted us right there and told me in no uncertain terms that you are going to jail. This is going to happen to you, and you are going to die in silence. That was his message to me. This guy is very, very powerful guy. He had put people in jail all by himself. He didn't need Chavez <laughs> to tell him to do it. Soon after that, on my email, I found uh, advanced to me 
a picture of the bus going to the, the CIC International School, of a picture of my son looking out the window of that bus, which went from my house to the school, a cryptic message below saying, he's looking out at the window, asking you to help him. And I got the message on that. On the election day uh, in 2006, which I described to you, we actually got really close to that election. But I was already packed. A former president was there. I was putting out my book on this uh, subject. And I got on a plane and uh, took my family out of there. Got financially destroyed because of the way I had to leave. A lot of people had been put in jail of the political class. But Chavez was very, very clever about this kind of stuff. He'd always find a cover for something. And there were a lot of mysterious deaths of political people and writers and journalists and so on. It just got worse and worse. So it was really frightening. And I didn't want to put my family in this kind of situation. And I had an American passport and I figured I'm just going to use it. I'm going back home. I can't handle this. 2006, you leave the country and Chavez dies, what, roughly a decade ago. What should people know about the Venezuela of today, how Venezuela has fared over the last decade in the post-Chavez era? Let me just go through what he did, all right? The first thing, he got legitimately elected because of a really, really terrible opposition campaign. They could have avoided all of this, but he got in there. And once he was in there, he took control. First of all, he began destroying the political parties. Second, he took over the CNE, which was the electoral thing. He never lost an election after that, including Maduro, his friend, his puppet. He took over Pedavesa. He fired 20,000 workers in, in Pedavesa, really smart people. And that actually created a huge demonstration against him in 2002. He took them over and he destroyed Pedavesa. Pedavesa, when he took over Pedavesa, it was at 3,600 barrels per day production. Last year, it's like at 750 barrels, uh, you know, 1,000 barrels. I mean, it's just unbelievable what he did to that. For example, in the Supreme Court, he doubled the, the number of people in the Supreme Court. Everybody agreed with him. The first justice that passed something that he didn't like, he put her in jail the next day. And she was there for two years and she got raped while she was in the jail. Documented story. Then he got into confiscation. He confiscated all kinds of companies. There was a, a famous case that, uh, there that I wrote about. The biggest cattle farm north of Argentina, okay, in, in South America. It was owned by an Englishman who was in the House of Lords. So uh, Chavez took this over saying, this is colonialism. We're taking this over. He put 5,000 people into the uh, burial people into the, into the farm. They killed and ate and destroyed all of the living creatures. And, and the entire place was a huge burial mess inside two years. An absolute cannibalization against civilization. After all of these, one third, one half of the private sector was destroyed. The currency uh, began to inflate and it went to 2 million percent. I mean, he just destroyed the economy. The situation they're in now is 15% of the population are refugees in all kinds of countries, including the US. 90% are below the poverty level. And the facilities, we have family in my wife's, you know, my wife's family, and they try and go to the public hospitals. You walk into a public hospital, you're walking into a grave site. 
no doctors, no medicine. You have to bring your own stuff and you get sick there because of the contagion. So this was all done by suppression and terrorism in the name of democracy and prosperity, but was actually a kleptocracy. $50 billion went missing, the economists found, over this 20-year period. Chavez's daughters and sons and so on living in New York apartments and in Paris. They have billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and nobody's chasing that money. Venezuela's message to America today is that democracy, societies, economies, they have a slow way of dying. They don't die with a bang, and they die with a whimper. This is the way the world ends. And that's what happens when a society gets hollowed out by polarization. And these things can happen here as well as they do everywhere else. And they have a sequence, which is destroy the democracy and law, and then you'll destroy the economy. And kleptocracy is the objective. Then stealing is easy to do. That's all that people are out to do here, I think. We should be aware of the fact that this happened in the richest and the most democratic country in Latin America in only five or six years. It was set on a path. It's still there 25 years later, and it has no way of recovering. We make the democracy work. We make the market work. And if we don't get this together, not by fighting the opposition, but by getting them back into the system, we have to pull them, not push them. That's my view. Very few people agree with me. <laughs> and I know you remain very active, very engaged on a host of issues. What do you find yourself most passionate about at this point in your career? The polarization of the United States. We've gone through a series, 2010, the Tea Party, 2016, Trump, 2020, Trump, 2024, Trump. He's going to be there one way or the other. So we have spent 14 years reacting now to polarizing, began the polarization in the Reagan administration, but there was still a lot of bipartisan stuff going on with Tip O'Neill and, and Reagan and so on, and a divided Congress. We had efforts at putting it back together again with Clinton and so on, but it worked for him, but it failed for the Democratic Party. The middle way, the third way was never really accepted. And we've wound up in a, in a country that if you look at the few polls on right track, wrong track, we've been on the wrong track for 40 years. Even today, I mean, it's like 70% and you know 25% right track, all right? There are two things here that bother me about American history and how little it's known. We live in a country that has an aspiration idea about a whole bunch of people with different cultures, different languages, and so on, coming together in this place and working together in a way that they could succeed when they couldn't in the, from the place they came from, all right? And we have done for the world, America has done for the world in the 20th century, a really marvelous thing for civilization in terms of the number of people who are alive, the wealth in the world, the poverty that has been reduced in that century from increased life expectancy by over 30 years in that one century. It's just extraordinary when you look at a country now that has 4% of, of the world's people, but 26% of the world's GDP. It has the world's currency. It's the strategic partner. And you can get 50% of them to say, this is carnage. This is a total failure. The system's got to be thrown out. We have to throw the whole thing out. It doesn't work. 
I said, well, that's believable. Now, look, when you start the way I do, I start with the response and not the question, right? That response is really, really interesting. That's a wave. That's an enormous wave from two, 2010 until today. That wave is actually dominating. You have Biden coming up, breaking it here. You had Obama, of course, that really kicked it off because having a black man as president for eight years was just too much for that wave. It really isolated them and, and so on. And the internet helped here where they could hide in their own uh, rhetoric, own echo chambers. And then the, the Democrats helped that along by reacting to it. So you have everybody going to the election to vote against. Trump is voting against the system and against the elites and against the establishment and against the Democrats and against the Republicans, too. Republicans just caved into him, really. He's kidnapped the Republican Party. And the Democrats are running a campaign against Trump or Trumpism. You're getting into a campaign where you have to understand the waves that you're in. You've got a wave against the system, which is, has racism in it and misogyny in it and all kinds of things that can distract you. And you've got a plethora of groups that are kind of like somewhat for the system, but when it reformed, it needs to be fixed here and there and so on. So you have one clear against and one very muddled for. They don't run the for campaign. They run the negative campaign. A negative campaign since the use of social media and television have become more powerful than the positive campaigns. The dream campaigns that I was involved in, they don't work. Oh, people aren't trying <laughs> to make them work today, all right? They're not take, taking a chance on it. That's the problem here. You have reaction against reaction in a country that has a history 250-year history of action with great results. It's being completely distracted now. When you get in a seven-second Twitter world, you are doing bombardments of attention-getting, distracting stuff. And you've got, in Trump, an expert at distraction and disruption. He knows this for 50 years. He's been doing this for 50 years. He's spectacular at it. He's P.T. Barnum carnival barker that is really, really powerful. People have no idea. You know, people think he's very powerful, but he's way more powerful than even he knows. People are so frightened. This is a country built by love and killed by fear. The fear on both sides now is palpable. It's palpable. Both sides feel that the other is Armageddon or death. Both of them are reacting to each other in a country that was built by action. So you've laid out a really substantive challenge to our our system. What is your level of optimism or what are your thoughts on a solution or solutions could be to the challenges that you've laid out? Well, I think there's asymmetric answer to this, okay? And that is, if we look at the wave, the wave against the system, it's made up of a whole bunch of people who are actually succeeding in the system. They're rural. They're maybe not as educated as they as others on the coast and so on, or urban settings. They're not as cosmopolitan. And if we take out the red states as uh, GDP, it's the third largest country in the world. You have the blue states would be the first, China would be the second, and the red states would be the third. It can be a success of itself. If you had the system working for people in those places, maybe we could shift them over. I mean, successful economically, going back to Maslow, economy, security, family, all right? 
if we had a program that invested in their family small businesses, I mean the top 1% investing in them, not government investing in them. They're not going to believe in government, totally private solution to this public problem. And that is, get the Jeff Bezoses of the world and Elon Musk's and the, uh, the trillionaire crowd to invest in small businesses that would never get their attention. $50,000 to help a, a small farmer improve his technology or market and so on, to improve his income a little bit. That's the only solution to polarization in America is we've got to get people on the anti-system wave marginally to say, look, I don't really buy all this stuff all the time. I think this country is a success. And in my community, I'm going to start working. So it is a, a success. And I, I feel that that's the way we should go. Instead of getting into this fight with the rest of the, of the country, you know, I don't have to work with them. I can just work in my own community. A real privilege to walk through your career from city councils to presidents in multiple hemispheres, spanning several decades of great stories and smart insights. Michael Rowan, thanks so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.